the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA09. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do. And we're back. Welcome back, Taylor. Welcome back, Pars. Thank you. Thank you. Very, very nice cut from one mm-hmm. scene to the next. Very Spare. official. So I'm also going to talk. So last week. Oh, wait, sorry. We're doomed to fail. That's, that's what this podcast is. I'm Farce, joined by Taylor. Um, and I'm going to cover. I don't even know what I'm covering today. It's not true crime. It's almost history, but not really. Great. It's, bad things happen, but the start of it is great. So I, okay. I, premise wise, I have no idea where we're headed at this point. So I love just, it. we'll just roll with it. I so, um, so I mentioned this in the episode released on Monday that I have been so down this whole Uruguayan uh, rugby team story alive. And now society of the snow on Netflix. Again, if you haven't seen that on Netflix, it just came out. They're already talking about this. going to be like an Oscar movie. And like, to be frank, I hate, award shows and like the whole concept of them and anything that they say is an Oscar movie. I never watched. So I actually watched it before I heard there was going to be an Oscar movie. And I'm glad I did because it's actually really, really good. I'm like, you ever saw Benjamin Button? They said that was supposed to be the best movie. Of Benjamin the year. Button was, was like, terrible. I was like, what in the fuck? I, I think Benjamin Button I hated was the, it. It was like probably like the fourth movie or something I watched where it was just based on critic recommendations. I was like, stop listening to these people. Like their movie suggestions are awful. I definitely like, yeah, it, it it ebbs and flows, but I um, I used to think the Oscars were fun, and then I was like, oh wait, I don't care. Like I don't need to watch rich people giving themselves awards anymore. But Benjamin Button was terrible. Well, like like what, didn't Hurt Locker win once? And I and I watched yeah. that one off the recommendation. It was like so like it's literally just like every war movie ever. Like I didn't I didn't even see it. Guys, PTSD and I, it wasn't even a true. It wasn't even about like a, a real person. It was just a movie about a bomb detonation team in Iraq during the war. And it's like, okay, like it's literally just every movie that's ever been about wars. So anyways, so this movie is not like that. This movie is actually really great. And it's actually um, filmed like unlike the alive version of this where. Wait, is it a documentary you know, or is it a. No, it's a movie. Okay. Yeah, it's a film. But like, but like, it's actually, it's, it's record. It's filmed with like Uruguayans and. Is it in Spanish? Is, it's in Spanish, but it's, oh. it's dubbed. Yeah, it's dubbed. So it actually took me like way too long to realize that it was dubbed. I was like, "Oh, the um, the audio track is off again, or something." And I was like, "Oh wait, no, this is all in Spanish." <laughs> so they do a really good job of that. Unlike in a live where it's Ethan Hawke and it's like blonde hair, blue eyed. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it was just yeah, like yeah. That. You, you could have tried a little bit clo- to match reality a little closer. Fantastic it was the movie. 90s. Absolutely loved it. I know. We all love Ethan Hawke. We still do. We have no issues with him whatsoever. Yeah. So uh, it sort of makes me think a lot about like survival stuff. Mm-hmm. It led me down this road of like survival situations, which is nothing about what my story has to do, but just letting you know, like that's my frame of mind was and just like tragedies and survival situations and stuff like that. So that's I was like, fair. that's, that's we, what mine was about. I think that's yeah. that's on, we, have, we have a theme ish. Theme ish ish. But I also caught a commercial for the Adam Driver movie. That's they came out. It's called Ferrari. It's about the life of Enzo Ferrari. Did you? Mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So all of that kind of was like, oh, like survival situations, mountaintops, Ferraris, cars. And I was like, oh, okay, I know, I know what I want to cover. So I'm gonna cover a hugely popular sports figure throughout like the '90s and 2000s. Okay. Who met a very, very tragic fate in 2013 do you have any idea where i'm going with this in 2013 is it a, is it like a race car is it a race car driver is that what you're saying yes is it dale earnhardt that's the only one i know <laughs> it's not dale earnhardt <laughs> that's a really good guess though actually because i think did he die Martin, yeah dale earnhardt did die number eight um is it dale earnhardt jr <laughs> it's not okay. no it, i'm no, sorry it's it's a different part of that sport. It's motorsports, but that's NASCAR. And what I'm going to be covering today is Formula One. And the person I'm covering is a guy named Michael Schumacher. Do you remember that name at all? I do not. Okay. That's fair. 
because in America, really, F one has taken off in the last like like five years, maybe. Like it's it's only Oh, recently is it because that of the, I is hear it because about of Netflix? it. Probably, <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, but in Europe, I mean, this guy Michael Schumacher was like largely credited with like popularizing. Um, F1, Formula One racing across the entire world outside of America. Before Yeah. Uh huh. then, it was like mostly popular in places where they're really good at it. So like think Italy, you know, the, the Brits were really good at it. And so, you know, then it expanded into the rest of the world because of this guy. And now it's becoming a thing. Most of you have somebody else will be mentioning here quite a b
Formula One racing is essentially the highest level of racing in the entire world. Um, as of 2023, there are 10 active F1 teams in the world. The most familiar ones that everybody's, well, the ones that people are most familiar with are going to be Ferrari, McLaren, and Mercedes. Cars, mm -hmm. uh, companies coming in and out of being part of Formula One, like, sporadically. So Honda will have a team one year, then drop out. Jaguar will have a team, then drop out. Aston will have a team, and then drop out, so on and so forth. So the revol it's a revolving door, but these three are fairly dominant as of as of now. Um, and Ferrari's been a part of it since its inception. It's the longest-running um, team that's been a part of the Formula One circuit. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, the craziest thing I ever heard of my whole entire life was being on British Airways and hearing a commercial for Hyundai, the car, and the way they pronounced it was like Hyundai. And it was like just unbelievable. That is one team that is not an F1 racing. Got it. <laughs> Predictably. So uh, there are 20 F1 racetracks or circuits in the world. And uh, what thing that my was mom went to the opening day in Las Vegas one. Did she actually attend it? Yeah, she went to like the big party because she, my mom works at a hotel in Vegas and she gets a bunch of perks and she went and she got to stay in, uh, got to be in like a nice box and watch John Legend and all that. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So that that's, that's really, so I actually looked this up. Like those tickets are so expensive. Mm -hmm. F1 tickets are crazy expensive. So, I mean, if you're able to get in to see these, one of these, like you should definitely do it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think the, the first year they did the Las Vegas circuit was actually last year, wasn't it? Oh, it, ju it just started. It was like a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah. So now because of that, that, that track, now there's two, um, races that happen in the U S so it's Austin and now it's going to be, um, Austin, Las Vegas, which yeah. is cool. So one thing I didn't know, uh, and if somebody knows more about this, please write to us and tell me more. But apparently, there's no fixed number of races in a year. So it always ranges somewhere between 11 to 23, depending. I don't actually know what it depends on. I couldn't figure out what it depends on, but it's kind of a variable thing. So you don't know if you're a driver, if you're going to be working for, I guess it's if it's 23, then that means that you'll be working for, I guess, 69. You'll be racing on roughly 69 days out of the year. Um, mm -hmm. we'll go into like the details of that here in a minute, but it's, it's weird. It's like the workload seems pretty, pretty highly variable. Mm -hmm. The way that a typical race is conducted is that Friday is when teams show up and they run practice rounds. So basically these are rounds they run to familiar, familiarize themselves with the track. They use that time to kind of dial in the car and do all that stuff. If they anticipate rain, they can do stuff to the car to kind of make it better in the rain. Um, they'll also do a practice session early on Saturday mornings. And then they start performing what's called the qualifying rounds. So this is a really big deal. So uh, when you look at like the stats of the top race car drivers in the entire world, in addition to how many wins they've had, how many championships and all that stuff, they also list how many qualifying rounds they've had or how many what, what's called pole positions they've had. And you mm -hmm. get a pole position through qualifying. So essentially what that means is that you get a one or two time shot in running as fast as you can around the lap, like on your own. And Got it whoever is at the top of that whoever's the fastest is closest to the front it's just a way for them to seed basically so when you start out you really want to be at the front obviously right and then because the of because you're there to race exactly right, right. Cool, cool, and cool. then if, and if you get pole position or if you get to the very front it's called taking pole position and that's the ranking they, they use to determine how good of a race car driver somebody is so sunday is when races actually begin and the rules are that however many laps it takes to go about 305 kilometers or 189 miles, that's the minimum number, maximum number of laps you need to do to win the race. So, for example, what? I'll explain it. So, okay. let's say that doing 80 laps around a track totals 306 kilometers, then whoever is the first to 80 laps wins. Make sense? What? No, wait, but, but, but it's, a, but it's a race. Isn't that just how races work? Well, yeah, but the idea is like, how do you know when to stop racing? <laughs> That's oh, the there's, there's no like. Yeah. Yeah. There's no time. like, no, there's no, cause you're just doing circles. Right. And so yeah. they, you don't, it, it is all deterministic of the track that you're on because all the tracks are different. Oh, okay. 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 So you can't be like every, why are they all different? 
Well, I actually don't know why they're all different. Well, they all look different for sure, right? Like, there's some... I mean, think about it this way. So, like, Monaco's track is in the streets of Monaco, right? Mm -hmm. I think Las Vegas' track is the streets of Las Vegas. Like, they, they, it's not no, going to look the same as, yeah. like, Coda. That makes sense. So, the there's a point system associated with this. So, basically, um, depending on how high you are or how close to the front you are in finishing, you get a word of points. So 25 points goes to the driver and to the team who is first. Then it drops like dramatically. <laughs> like it goes from 25. I think the next one is 15 and then it keeps going further, further down. Then mm -hmm. you have like additional points you get for lap times and all that stuff. The idea is you're just trying to get as many points total out per race. So at the very end, when the season ends, they look at who had the highest number of points across all these different races, 11 to 23, and they award you a prize, essentially. You're awarded the championship. But so you also want to be in a bunch all the races. You got to be in all the races. You have, you, do you have to be in all of them? You need to be in all I mean, you want to be in all of them because if you're, because imagine this, imagine you are the best racer and you're winning and you're number one for eight of 11 races. You don't know if in the next like race or two, somebody's going to drive into you and send your car flying, you know, like you don't know, like a thousand things can go wrong. And so mm -hmm. you want to be in every race you can be. There are teams that have joined mid season, but that's just like a, let's just warm the team up, you know, let's right. warm up everybody. Let's make sure we get our car dialed in for the next season. So on and so forth. Right. Cause you couldn't like, if you miss one, you're fucked. Right. Um, you're, you're actually not fucked. So there's a story um, with Schumacher in particular where he didn't actually have to win a race. He didn't have to finish mm -hmm. a race. It was one of the last races of the season. All he had to do was prevent a specific other driver who was very close to him to mm -hmm. not finish also. And mm -hmm, so there's, mm -hmm. some, there's some conjecture that this other driver was coming up behind Schumacher and then Schumacher drove into him, like sideswiped him, basically totally both their cars. And everybody was pissed on that other team because they're like, he did that intentionally because he knew he just has to prevent him from even crossing the finish line. Mm -hmm. So, so you don't actually have to win every race. Like you can actually get so far ahead that you just have to prevent the other guys from getting points. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, so all these drivers, so there's a, the, the scoring system is like you, there's a driver and then there's a team. The, the points from the driver go to the team, but the points from the team don't always go to the driver because there's multiple cars on the same track usually for the same team. And so all these drivers want to be number one because like fuck their team. They want to be number one because when you're number one, you get a shitload of money. Yeah. <laughs> number one. So totally. So right now, the number one, as of 2023, the number one highest paid driver is this guy named Max Verstappen. Um, he is paid $55 million per year. The lowest guy who is a, a professional race, like a guy who's driving a car that's probably worth more than a billion dollars, his name is Logan Sargent, and he is paid $1 million. So that is kind of the differential there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That guy, by the way, he's 23 years old, so you can't really knock him. But still, 55 to 1 million. That's a huge yeah. difference. So yeah. the cost of doing this. So each team usually spends somewhere between $200 million to $500 million a year in doing this. Ferrari and Mercedes are obviously the ones that are in the higher bracket. They're in the half a billion dollar range. And really the reasoning for it is twofold. One is it's good marketing because your name is plastered everywhere all the time. Um, and if your driver's good you get even more famous because then they're promoted elsewhere as well. So right. you want that, you, it all kind of works together. And the other big thing is engineering. So the way I've always kind of equated it is like the way NASA used to be with like innovation that then goes into like commercial planes and stuff like that. That's kind of what this is. It's like a proving ground for all these huge brands to like figure out like what is the absolute limit we can push engineering to Right. Or Formula One, they can then translate into it. So several things I pulled out here was things like carbon fiber being used in cars. That all started in F1. Same with mm -hmm. active suspension, paddle shifting, buttons on the steering wheel. Like all this I mean, stuff. What a job. Yeah. To be like, you know what? We're just going to test this. Like, it might kill you. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I don't know, Taylor. For the money, for $55 million, it, it's 
I, I, I was going through, um, who, what was I on? I, I, I was just looking at uh, Ferrari's, it's called Scuderia Ferrari is like the name of their stable, their racing team. And it's a separate website from their commercial website, their consumer website. But I was on there and on the front page was like, um, rest in peace. And it was like a picture of this like kid. And mm-hmm. I was like, and he was just like some kid, like an 18 year old who was like in one of their driver programs. Like basically they put these kids in these programs, like level them up step-by-step step to eventually become F1 racers. And uh-huh. yeah, he had a crash and just flipped the car and just fucking like just uh-huh. crazy. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about like, who, again, all this is kind of shaped, like understanding like, who this guy actually was. So like understanding like, what you're capable of so i look at golfers for example and in my mind i'm like that's not an athlete if john daly can do it it's not athletic right like if he can do it yeah while smoking cigarettes it's probably not athletic and (laughs) like i stupidly also i mean look i'm probably stupid about that anyways about golfers i'm sure it is incredibly athletic i think they work really hard yeah (laughs) yeah exactly so don't come at me i'm acknowledging that i'm ignorant but I was also very ignorant about this too. So yeah. I just assume like you're driving a car, big deal, right? Like how yeah. how big of a deal could it be? And then I started like going deeper into like what kind of cars these were. It's like kind of insane what happened. So for example, as a regulation, an F1 car at the absolute maximum has to be able to go from zero to 99 miles per hour back to zero in less than five seconds. It can't be five. It has to be less than five seconds. Oh my God. So what that essentially means is these guys are usually subject between two and seven Gs on their bodies between acceleration and braking. And then you layer on lateral turns. You're basically doing crazy hairpin turns at around 180 miles per hour. And you can see why it takes a little bit of a unique individual. Like there's athleticism and then there's like you're built built different. And these guys are built different. I was thinking about how, like, I can't, like, play a ring around the rosy with my children because I get really nauseous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you know? reading, reading, I, I read some of this stuff around, like, what the expectations on your body are. And some things are that, for example, it has been documented and recorded that their reaction times are two and a half times that of a normal person, the speed of their reactions. Yeah. It also, has it has to be. It, it is noted that the average F1 driver's neck is 20% thicker than a normal person because the yeah. G-forces on your on your body are so high that if your neck wasn't thicker and stronger, you'd just be like Gumby. Like your head would just be bobbling around. Like you wouldn't be able to actually hold it up straight. Wait, I'm sorry. That is so gross. Wait, did it, did it start out that way or did the necks get thicker from like the more they do it? So they, they, there's a training methodology. So. Ew. One thing that we're going to get to here in a little bit while bringing up now is that Schumacher is the first F1 driver to incorporate actual um, strength training as a core part of his workout regimen or his like mm-hmm. his driving regimen. So he'd work out, he'd lift weights four hours a day. They have a special helmet that he had to wear on his head. So he'd mm. actually just move his neck over side to side to strengthen the side muscles of it. I don't know why that's like the, one of the grossest things I've ever heard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, hate you, that. There's some pictures of him, and actually, it's funny because I was looking up pictures of his son. His son Mick yet. is now, um, his son Mick is now a Formula One driver as well, and it, it's more pronounced in Mick than it was in 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 Michael. But his neck is like it, like it, like it's thicker than his head. <laughs> like, it looks weird. <laughs> like it, it looks a little unusual. And I started looking at pictures of Lewis Hamilton, and I was like, his neck looks kind of normal. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, I haven't looked it up yet. I'm gonna look it up now, and I'm gonna be like, "Ew, keep going." <laughs> so there's other things too. So for example, one thing that was noted was the heat on these things is absolutely incredible. So apparently, the cockpit is usually running at a, at least 140 degrees, and you're wearing a thick fire retardant suit. So right, you're doing this for over two hours at a time. So the endurance, and you have to not die because cars are coming at you at 200 miles per hour. It is. It is an insane workload for an average person to be able to actually consume and digest all this stuff. And that's why, like I said, you don't hear about the greats ever, right? Well, no, you hear about the greats. You don't hear about casually okay um, drivers ever. You know, again, Ayrton, Schumacher, Hamilton, like that's it. Like there's really not that many outside of that because it's so unique to be incredibly good at this at the highest level for a very long period of time. 
So going to Michael's life early on. So he was born in 1969 in West Germany. He's German. Um, and it's interesting because I dug forever on information about the whereabouts of his parents in the 1940s, and I can't seem to find anything. <laughs> of course you can't. Um, <laughs> so, that's like, something um, probably was going on there. His neck doesn't look weird. Look up Mick. Look at Mick's neck. Mick's neck stands out okay. to me. Okay. Mick Continue. Schumacher. And I'm going to look at it, too. Yeah, okay. his, he has, like, a neck that's the same width as his face. They're both yeah, there's very one. Cute. Yeah, they're very what? Cute. Isn't it like good looking? You mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They're his mom is a very attractive woman as well, so it all kind of came together. Um, yeah. So he, his parents owned. Um, his dad uh, owned a uh, go kart track that his mom also worked at, serving refreshments, um, and that's kind of how. Michael came up in this like quaint little village in Bavaria um, was he would race go-karts and he developed like a really good taste for it. But he was also one of those rare drivers who was like super mechanical. So he wasn't just like a, yeah, give me a car. I'm going to go with it. He's actually was digesting and understanding what the mechanical components of making the car go faster actually meant. Um, from that, he graduated to what's known as formula three. And from there he graduated to formula one. So Normal. Sorry, I misspoke there. He went from Formula Three to Formula Three Thousand, then to Formula One, and the only real difference there is between Formula Three and Formula between Formula Three and One is the car itself. So in Formula Three and Formula Three Thousand, the cars get more powerful, but they're all uniform because the idea is that F One is trying to look at a controlled field of drivers to figure out who's actually doing the best. So mm -hmm. if you give them better cars, then of course they're going to do better. So they make them all drive the exact same cars. And that was his kind of graduation process. So in 1991, that was the first year he debuted in F1. And he was pretty much okay. So what I mentioned earlier on qualifying, the only good thing he really did that was like shocking to everyone was he placed seventh in qualifying, which was like unheard of at the time. He was just like, I mean, he he didn't even finish that race on, on that Sunday because his car's clutch blew out. But Nobody cared because they're like, wow, this guy actually is first race and he's already in seventh pole position. That's impressive. Mm. And so that was kind of the point when people started realizing that like, this guy might be someone special. And at that time, it looks like a lot of these companies were trying to buy for him to race for them instead. Like everybody was basically like, this is the guy that we want to approach. And so they kept trying to throw money at him to try and attract him over to their side. And it really wasn't until 1994 when it became clear that he was kind of like a somebody. And mm -hmm. like I said, that's also the year Ayrton Senna died. He died at San Marino, at the San Marino Grand Prix. And my take on it was, it wasn't really that it wasn't coincidental. So Ayrton Senna and him had a rivalry because Ayrton was already like this established, you know, world famous driver. And this was kind of like the mm -hmm. guy who was coming up and they were right on each other's heels. Um, to the point where they actually had accidents and mishaps with each other. It was, it was a pretty contentious point. The race that Ayrton died at, the San Marino Grand Prix, Schumacher was behind him. He was always behind him. And so, like, so this guy who's fighting to be, stay the best in the world has this young mm -hmm. kid behind him constantly. And it was at that race where he basically left the track at a, 180 miles per hour and slammed into a wall at 130. Um, okay. And the he's camera... Also, he's also very cute. You were, were all the F1 drivers very cute? I, they, they don't hire ugly ones. The ugly it doesn't ones. look like it. I mean, yeah. I have no, I don't see any ugly ones so far in the story. There you go. Um, yeah. See, all the more reason you got to attend one of these races. Um, so part of what they use, there's obvious footage of Ayrton's crash, but one of the footages that they use is from Schumacher's car because, again, he was just always behind him. And, like, there's some conjecture that, like, oh, he was pushing the car and himself too much. And that's why he ended up slamming into that wall because he knew Schumacher was riding his tails. Who knows what the logic was. There was a transmission line that was a, in his skull. What a fucking, oh my God, what a dangerous job. I know. It's not like, it's not like, you know, not dangerous. You should, uh, you should read the autopsy of, of Senna on, on, um, well, you can actually watch it on, on, 
his documentary on Netflix. Um, they they talk about it because there's so many things that entered his skull at once. <laughs> Horrible. So, anyways, back to Schumacher. So he would win his first and second championships for a team called Benetton in '94, '95, and then he made his. Oh wait, hold biggest... on. I'm sorry. I'm putting it. I'm putting it on the crash video. How do I make the sound stop? Hold on. No, keep, no, but uh, like, tell us. Give us your what live reaction. Okay. Give us your live reaction. Oh, this is from the film. Wait, was that it? It didn't explode or anything, though. No, it didn't explode. I, I expected. It's very close to the ground. Oh, I see. Oh, God, yeah. He banged into the wall, and it kind of moved. I turned the sound off, but it says, bad impact for Santa. And it says, this looks bad. Yeah, what's crazy is from when you see him leading the track to him hitting the wall. So he managed to decelerate 50 miles oh, per God, hour. Oh, God, I see his body. And you'll notice his head tilts a little bit. So everybody was like, oh, he's fine. Yeah. Yeah, he was already dead. Whoa. That's what I just saw. Yikes. Yeah, what's crazy. So he decelerates 50 miles per hour in that incredibly short window of time. He actually downshifts twice. That's how crazy fast these guys are. He downshifted twice to reduce speed as much as possible. Didn't didn't work, obviously. Right. Because he like knew that. Yeah. And then you might have seen a car whiz past him. That would have been Schumacher's car right behind him. It's just so crazy that the other guys keep going. Like, I know that they do that, but whatever. But, like, did they even notice? No. So the thing is, they wouldn't have done that if they knew he was dead. Because he moved his head, you know, they put this wall of the shield up. And yeah. they um, they airlifted him out of there. And uh, Schumacher in interviews later would say... I didn't know he was dead. No, we nobody nobody told us he was dead. They told us he was in a coma or something. We didn't, yeah. just, you know. So um, they would have stopped the race though if they actually if he if they knew that. Mm. So in '95, he's coming off of being a champion for this team called Benetton, and he ends up making a move to the Ferrari team, and that's where he would stay from 1996 to 2006, and that's where he would basically become the face of outborn racing globally. Like I mentioned before, there's a movie now with Adam Driver about Enzo Ferrari. One thing to note is, and this is common knowledge, but like Enzo Ferrari didn't give a shit about selling cars to beat rich people. Like that was not his goal. His only goal was to build fast cars to race them. Like he just mm-hmm. wanted a racing team. The car selling cars was just a way to finance having a team. Mm-hmm. Like later on, there's all these reports about how much disdain he had for people who drove his cars because he was just like, they're status symbols. Like, no, like none of these people are going to tracks. None of these people are using these cars the way they're supposed to be used. And mm-hmm. so, anyways, um, but that being said, he was part of or Enzo or sorry, Ferrari itself as a team was part of F1 since the very first day all the way through. No other team has that record. Not even Mercedes. Mercedes was out of the game for like fifty years before they came back recently with Lewis Hamilton. Um, and so, was that was that during World War II? Or was this after that? <laughs> It was after. So in 1955 was the last year Mercedes was a part of F1. And then they came back, I think it was 2010, nine, something yeah. like that. Which actually Schumacher was a part of as well, which we're going to talk about. But the point was that this was incredibly important to the DNA of Ferrari. And they fucking sucked at it. So they were great for a number of years. And then they basically fell into complete obscurity in the 1980s and 1990s. Like nobody wanted to race for Ferrari. Their cars were a laughing stock amongst drivers. Like it was, it was a joke. I feel like that was like the peak Ferrari poster time. That maybe for the, for the, yeah for the consumer cars it book was fair. yeah yeah for the cars it was like I remember the F40, the F50, the Enzo. Like they were all amazing cars. But those were all consumer cars. Their race cars, their Formula cars, were an absolute joke. And the reason they were a joke was because. They over-engineered the shit out of their V12 engines that were big, bulky, and heavy. And all these companies have figured out how to get the same amount of power out of a lighter, smaller engine, the V10 or V8. And they were still chugging along with these big, heavy engines. So um, so they managed to bring Schumacher over from Benetton to Ferrari, which was a huge deal for them. And it was a huge deal for him because by all accounts, he was basically able to get in the weeds the way he was when he was doing go-kart racing and talk to the engineers and be in the garage with them and say, this part of the car sucks. This part needs tweaking. Like he was able to get hands on. Like he was incredibly resourceful when it came to just like identifying where the car needed to be tweaked and and augmented. Mm -hmm. So in around, 
So from start to finish, his racing career, he was active from 1991 to 2006, so about 15 years. He makes a comeback briefly for the 2010 and 2012 season. Overall, he won seven world champions, which is the which is currently tied with Lewis Hamilton for the most wins in F1 racing history. Like he, like I mentioned earlier, he ranks number two only behind Lewis Hamilton. Senna, for example, is number six, but the reality is he died pretty young. So like he, mm-hmm. if he'd stayed on, he probably would have gone higher up, but he was already out of the game by that point. So he makes a brief return because in 2010, Mercedes decides that they want to come back for the first time since 1955 to F1 racing. And they bring him out of retirement and say, hey, will you be basically our technical advisor on things and basically just help boot this whole thing up? And he decided mm-hmm. during that time that he also wanted to keep driving. So he comes out of retirement after four years and starts driving for Mercedes-Benz again. Um, and he basically lasts two seasons. He realizes that he's done. I was listening to other race car drivers talk about this. And they were like, yeah, like when you were before, when I'd be driving, I could see a gap and like find a way to get my car through the gap in like a turnaround. Mm-hmm. And the older I got, the gap just disappeared. I just couldn't see it anymore. And I was like, okay, that's the oh, time. Wow. That's yeah. when, you know, you know, you got to totally. hang up and that's kind of what he ended up doing. And it was with him hanging up his racing helmet in 2010 or sorry, 2012. That's when Lewis Hamilton showed up. So it was literally just the passing of the torch from one grade to the next. Uh, and that would be basically the point when he would retire. 2012 was officially last active year as a race car driver. So you might be asking yourself, Fars. What is doomed to fail here? Come on, Fars. Mm-hmm. Come on, Fars. Right? Mm-hmm. So, going over Shubi's personal life, uh, in 1995, he married a woman named Corinna. They had two kids. We mentioned one of them earlier. His name's Mick. He's currently an F1 driver. I think he's 21 to 23 years old, somewhere around there. These people were crazy, crazy rich. <laughs> yeah. They were like, they were like, it's funny because these, it, it's so much different than like, I don't know, like any other sport. Like, I think about like golf or NFL or maybe tennis is on the same line. Like these guys feel like royalty. Like they're not like Mm -hmm. normal rich. They're like royalty rich. Mm -hmm. Um, They do like crazy things. So for example, they, this guy had homes in Monaco and Switzerland and Colorado. Like there were, it's wild how much fun, cool shit they can do with the amount of money they have. But they're also super generous. So apparently they donate tens of millions of dollars to all kinds of charities. They built hospitals, they built schools, they built drinking wells all this stuff. They also did like traditional rich people things. They rode horses, attended sporting events, and they loved skiing to the point where they actually had a home in Switzerland, which is where the Swiss Alps obviously are. Mm -hmm. So in on December 29th of 2013, so like right over 12 months after he officially retires from racing, he goes out skiing with his aforementioned son, Mick, um, in the Swiss Alps. Sorry. The French Alps, not the Swiss Alps. He has a home in the Swiss Alps. He was in the French Alps. So they were in the French Alps and they go off piste, which is piste, which is the non-ski sanctioned area. Um, and by all accounts, from what we gathered from news reports around this time, this was like sub-ideal skiing time. Like even if you stayed on piste, you'd have a hard time finding really great fresh snow to snow on. It was just not mm-hmm. the time of the year to find that, and especially not off beast. So he was out in this area with his son, and the details around what actually happened are a little bit murky because it's he's he's kind of a, his family's kind of mercurial, anyways. All we know is he's wearing a helmet, but he somehow fell and hit his head on a rock. That's oh my it. God. People come in, first responders come in to figure out what's going on with him. And by all accounts, he's talking to them. He's lucid, all that good stuff. And what they do is they take him to this local regional hospital to figure out what's going on with him. They know he needs help, but he's not in that bad of a condition. But over the course of his taking there, he just starts going downhill super, super quick. His cognitive function becomes very clearly impaired. And they realize, oh, shit, we don't have the facilities to treat this guy. We need to get him to this other hospital that's much larger that requires a helicopter flight, which they should have done at the very beginning and might have changed everything I'm about to say going forward if they had done that. So they airlift him to another larger hospital, and that's when they realize 
things are pretty bad. So what they do is they put him into a medically induced coma. They performed two surgeries on him. They removed two blood, sorry, they removed blood clots from his brain. And then they force induce him into a coma. And he's in that coma for about six months. So. Oh my God. Yeah. So roughly 11 months after the accident is when details kind of start emerging about his condition. So after six months, they start kind of reducing the drugs they put him on to bring him slowly out of a coma. It took him a while after the medically induced coma for him to come out of his own naturally induced coma. Um, And at that time, it became clear that he was completely paralyzed and that he was unable to speak, unable to communicate. So um, regardless, like it sounded like he was slowly gathering a little bit more and more functionality here and there. But Mm -hmm. in the, in the years since then, some things have kind of trickled out in terms of what's going on. So his philosophy on his personal life was always that family, everything family should remain private. So his kids were never in the media. His wife was only in the media to the extent that she literally went to every race with him, but they would never do Mm -hmm. interviews. It was just like a very private material family. And that's how they kind of wanted to keep things. If you look at the pictures of their house, there's one picture where it looks like they actually built like this Batman lair, this underground tunnel so that people wouldn't even have to get out of their cars to go inside the house. It was pretty mm-hmm. cool looking. Um, oh. But because of that, his family's been really secretive about his condition. And so really what we know comes out in trickles. He's still alive. So 10 years on after this accident, he's still here, but I'm going to go into some conversations that I've read about his friends and family have reported out. So basically um, in in 2022, his wife, Corinna accepted a award on his behalf from his hometown. And what she talks about is how much her and her kids and his parents miss Michael. They're like, we miss him. He's here with us. We miss him every day, but he's still here. Um, Not in the same way. And she'll, like, say certain things like that. There was another story where the former head of the Ferrari racing team, who was really close to him, went to his house. And in 2019, they watched an F1 race. And, again, he was his statement was, I don't want to say anything that Corinna wouldn't want me to say um, about his condition. I'll just tell you that we couldn't communicate with each other. But he was conscious. Like, he was aware. But we couldn't talk to each other. There was no communication. There was no movement. Um oh. So I went into a little bit of a technical uh, – finding details is so hard. The last picture I could see of, of Schumacher – so it wasn't even of him. It was – his wife ended up buying this giant palace in, like, Majorca. Mm-hmm. And the, he was airlifted there via private helicopter. And they took a picture of the helicopter. Like, that's it. Like, that's all – like, mm-hmm. all we get of this guy at this point is he's, like – random little tidbits that come out every now and then, like what when Corinna was speaking at that award ceremony. So what I found was there's this association of neurosurgeons and it's, I assume it's a reputable organization. It's neurosurgeons. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. what they talked about was these two operations to remove blood clots from the brain and the fact that they um, had to induce him into a medically, medically, uh, sorry, they had to put him into a medically induced coma, talking about kind of the the reasons for this and what the outcomes of this actually are. So it, this is basically a traumatic brain injury is what you generically call an issue like this. And apparently mm-hmm. their take on it was that pressure within the brain was probably the biggest thing that causes problems. So what they were saying was, for the most part, they probably had to cut part of his skull out as he was in this medically induced coma to reduce swelling in the brain. And oh basically the variables in terms of recovering from something like this are zero to hundred percent. So, <laughs> yeah. So what they noted, they cited several cases of situations that had the details this had, which was surgery to remove blood, um, brain clots, six months worth uh-huh. of coma, uh, removing skull to re- remove pressure. Those are the details we know. <clears throat> and there have been cases of, specifically children recovering from this. Mm -hmm. And what they say is that recovery is almost entirely based on what's called brain plasticity, which is the brain's ability to kind of adapt to the environment that it has to operate in. And Mm -hmm. that that plasticity reduces based on age. So if you're young, depending on how bad the brain injury is, you can recover 100%. 
If you're older, you might not recover at all. That's basically the variables that we're looking at. So as of right now, Schumacher is 54 years old. Uh, and by all accounts, it seems like he's probably past the age. He's been in yeah. some version of this condition for since December 29th, 2013. Wow. And like I mentioned, as of 2019, his wife built this crazy villa in Majorca and she expanded it to include a medical wing. So as of right now, there are 15 full-time doctors and nurses at this center taking care of him 24-7 at a cost oh of God. around $150,000 per week. So, Jesus. yeah, we, we I watched – there's also a Schumacher documentary on, um, on Netflix, and I watched that as well. And, again, you, it's a lot about his racing history, and then it goes mm-hmm. into – Corinna and Mick and um, Gina Marie is the daughter talking about their dad. And it is just gut wrenching. Like, oh, that's terrible. Like, think about like the coolest, most active, most outgoing. Like, he, he was just like, I, I can't think of a more opposite to like just sitting in your shoe. Because what they were saying was during the years that he retired, like, mm-hmm. whatever extent he actually fully retired. They were talking about how, you know, he would just go bungee jumping and horseback riding and he was constantly doing shit. And right. like one story Quinna would say was was how, you know, they were at their French house or something or their Swiss house. And he was like, let's just grab the plane and go to Dubai to go um, uh, jump out of airplanes. He was like, he wouldn't do it once. He would do 24 times in a row. Like, he's just the most active guy, always seeking that kind of thrill. Mm-hmm. And to think of him just sitting in this like giant palace, like in a chair, like it's, it's it sounds like a nightmare. It's so, a nightmare. It reminds yeah. me, it sounds it, like it kind of reminds me of Christopher Reeves, how it's like he was like this like big strong man and then he was paralyzed after yeah. an accident. You know, wow, um, yeah, I, I didn't actually make that analogy, but yeah, it, the only reason I would have made that analogy, and the only reason why I think it might have been even a little bit different is because Christopher Reeves was able to like still sort of get around and do things. right. It sounds like he's it sounds like, like yeah, it sounds, it sounds like there's vegetative, yeah, yeah, which is like crazy to think about, You're just like a human in this shell, but yeah. Um, I mean, so this morning there was ice on the sidewalk and I was like, the kids were putting their feet on it. And I was like, do not fall on that ice. I was like, if you fall on ice, like that's the worst thing that could happen. And it's crazy how quick that can happen. And like, again, we're, we're pretty much um, at the whim of um, at this point, Corinna to talk about it. It's interesting because I went and added um, Mick Schumacher on, on Insta. Uh, and I was just, I was just curious. I was like, what's he like? Like, what's his life like? And um Hold on, let me find this one. So, yeah, there's this one picture of him with his girlfriend. It's in black and white. And um, somebody, it, people are just asking about his dad. They're like, they're yeah. like what's going on? Mick, like, like, like we, we want to know, like, what's the latest? And, like, you know, their, their family is so closely guarded about this stuff. Um, as of this last Christmas, Corinna posted a picture of the family minus Michael in front of the mm-hmm. Christmas tree. Um, they literally don't want anybody to even see him. And so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like mistake. it's just terrible. It sounds really bad. But that's mm-hmm. the thing. If you don't know, your imagination goes all the way to the worst case scenario, right? And yeah. so, but I mean, $150,000 a week on medical care, like it's got to no, be. No, it sounds bad. like it is the worst case scenario. Yeah. No, yeah. it sounds like, I mean, if you were poor, he'd be dead. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. One of those things. And that's crazy. Oh, that's so crazy that he like has this ridiculously crazy job and then like doing something pretty normal gets him that, you know? Yeah, skiing's bad. Like, don't, don't go skiing. Don't go skiing. 100%. Didn't, didn't, didn't Sonny Bono die from yes. a ski accident? Absolutely. I remember that one. Remember like when we were talking about the Kennedys, how they would play ski football, like idiots. And of course, one of them died doing that. Yeah, just like, don't, don't ski. Don't do that. It's not worth it. No, not at all. Like, you're not going to be in the Olympics. Let's not. Yeah. My brother, my brother Kincaid, he fell um, snowboarding, had to go to the hospital. And like, if he wasn't wearing a helmet, he would have been dead probably. Yeah, my cousin broke her leg like two years ago skiing. Oh my God. And then we also know a girl who, this is disgusting. She fell off of a, like a cliff and broke both of her ankles at the boot. They like What do you cracked. mean at the boot? 
like where the top of the boot was is where her oh my god (laughs) awful god that is so Oh, it makes him throw up. Yeah, (laughs) none of this is worth it. None Um, of it is worth it. Oh my god. So, yeah, that's my story. I was just uh, the 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 whole correlation of Sidey in the snow and alive in the Uruguayans was just like the mountain thing because like there's pictures of him skiing and it's like the Mm -hmm. most beautiful like scenery in the world and um and I it was uh, that just came to mind. I was like, oh yeah, what happened to Michael Schumacher? Like the thing is. I was just like a big deal to me in 2013 when it happened. And I just forgot mm. about it. I was like, you know, just yeah. in and out. And I was like, what happened to him? And, and and I started digging into it. I was like, dude, like, we literally don't know anything. Like, as much info we knew in 2013, we know now. Except for this one A, uh, this Neurosurgery Association um, document that's like, here's what the best guesses as to his current condition based on the limited details we have. Yeah. So, else yeah, changed. it just sounds like they don't want anybody to know which makes sense you know you just want to be like let's just i don't know but it sounds like a terrible way to live also i know i know um well, that was, that was but, yeah there you go that's my story well thank you that was interesting <laughs> maybe i'll watch some f1 i mean i am for sure watching i'm re-watching the senate documentary tonight that's all that's the one on netflix um, i already watched the schumacher one but the senate one was incredible it was like man like we're so american-centric and we're like you know michael jordan but it's like mm-hmm. dude, this guy this guy was like michael jordan for like the entire other part of the world um i know that's so funny that like we don't know that i saw like a, a funny meme that was like harry potter is basically my age in in the books like he like um malfoy and i have the same birthday he's a year, a year older than me if you look at his birthday um but i saw a meme that was like there's no way that i, I saw that harry potter took place in the 90s because at no point does someone stop and say man the chicago bulls are having a great run aren't they <laughs> where, wait someone ju- where did you hear that it was like a, a meme on instagram uh, okay okay yeah 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 then i saw that too but yeah but you know but but you know, we're exactly, we're thinking, like, basketball and the rest of the world is, like, uh, we're playing soccer and, like, it's a lot bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're living in two different parallel universes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's the story. If y'all have any thoughts about it, I would love to hear. Again, doomedofilpod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's all, we, that's all I have, too. I didn't do a re-release last week because I'm between jobs and i decided to take a nap all day but you know i'll get back to it love it love it <laughs> yeah. um yeah. well thanks for listening everyone please do uh, let us know what you think and we'll be joining you all again next week cool thanks, thanks taylor bye